those Bibles open and turn with me now to the New Testament, to the book of Titus. To the book of Titus, we're looking this morning at chapter 3 again, focusing this morning on verses 6 and 7. But for the sake of context, I want to start reading back at verse 4, reading through verse 7. Entrusting our right hearing to the Holy Spirit, here's what the Apostle Paul writes to his disciple Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as many of you know, I was away this past week uh, in Charlotte at Reformed Theological Seminary, continuing in uh, my doctoral studies. Uh, thankfully, it was my last seminar class that I'll have to take for the program. And just so, you know, to finish up, I have a couple of hundred pages to write uh, within the next year, year and a half or so. But one of the things that I love to watch while I'm at a doctoral seminar, because we have a, a mixed class, you'll have people like me or men like me who were finishing up their program on their seventh and last class, but then it was full of men who were beginning the program, and this was his very first class. And, and this particular class was all about covenant theology, one of the staples of our tradition here in the Presbyterian Church as explained by the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms. And I don't have time to, to give you a primer this morning on covenant theology, but one of the things in which Dr. Ligon Duncan did as he began the class on Monday is he went all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3, and he began to talk about God as creator, that us we exist as creation, and there has to be some sort of condescension, if you will, from the Creator God to, to have fellowship and communion with His creation, especially us as His people. And then, of course, we talked about the, 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 the ushering in or the entrance of sin into the world by Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 as they broke the law of God by eating of the forbidden fruit and and you could just see it. You could see it on the face of those guys who this was their first class. Why in the world are we in a doctoral program going through the story of Genesis 1 through 3 that we know and that we've preached and we have read 10 times, 20 times, hundreds of times? It was the same feeling that I felt when I entered into my first doctoral ministry class. It was by a friend of ours who's preached here, Dr. Bob Kara, the provost of Reformed Theological Seminary, and it was a class on preaching the Gospels. And his first question to us as a doctoral level student body in this class was, 
Who is Jesus to you? And I thought, well, boy, if nobody has that answer in this class, we're in trouble. And, and so first break comes along, and I knew of Dr. Kerr, and I said, Dr. Kerr, that was a very interesting way to, to introduce this class to doctoral-level students. And if you know anything about Dr. Kerr, he has a high-pitched Yankee-like accent, uh, and, uh, and he speaks really fast, and he always calls you by your last name. And I'm not going to try to impersonate that. But he responded with, Mr. Adams, don't you know that you never graduate from the gospel? And in a way, the Apostle Paul here, as he writes to his beloved Titus to speak to these churches in the island of Crete, he's reminding them that they never graduate from the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And if we put it in the context of the Bible as a whole, especially this book in Titus, we have the gospel presentation and then we have the obligations out of thanksgiving in which we perform to our God. That out of gospel thanksgiving for the person and work of Jesus Christ, now we live for His glory. Jesus said Himself, didn't you? If you love Me, you'll... Obey my commandments. And, and as the Apostle Paul writes these instructions to Titus on how it is that we have a healthy church, if you look even at our sermon series title, it's Blueprints for a Healthy Church. If we are to be a church that is God-centered and grounded, founded upon the truths of God's Word, we first must be reminded that we never graduate from the gospel and then that the gospel now calls us to a particular way of living. And Titus hasn't it already in chapters 1 and 2 has talked in length about this robust way in which men and women and children in all the spheres of influence in their life are disposed to display God's gracious character to a lost and dying world. And here it is that, that in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, the gospel is being, or maybe better yet, I should say, we are being reminded of the gospel to fuel that obedience. And so if you just look back at verses 4 and 5 that we handled last week together, just want to remind you of the reality of our salvation because it says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's in, in summary form, that's the Christmas story that we celebrated not that long ago. That the mercy and the love of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And as He has appeared, verse 4 says, He has saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His own mercy. And so just think about what the Apostle is writing here in verse 5. He, he's speaking of this idea of what we would call justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace where by He 
counts to us the righteousness of Christ, not by any merit of our own, but by the perfect obedience of our Savior. And so right there in verse 5, we are approached really with an implied issue that we are in need of salvation. That we need to recognize the sinfulness of sin that exists within us. And so I always like to, to joke a little bit about how the Gospel begins with really bad news. That you are a sinner. And the worst news is, in and of ourselves, there is no hope for salvation. That we cannot reason our way to God. We cannot do any works, as the text says here. We cannot do any sort of works to earn favor with God. And so if we see the sinfulness of sin within us, now it requires us to to look outside of ourselves to the love and mercy of God that has appeared to us in God our Savior, Jesus. And so without the bad news of the gospel, that you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, and when he means dead, he literally means dead, therefore you cannot do anything to to find your way into a right relationship with God, Therefore, you look outside of yourself unto Christ, and it is then, sensing a real sinfulness of sin, learning to hate that sin, clinging to Christ by faith as He is offered to you freely in the gospel, it is then that we are, as verse 5 says, saved. And if we understand what the Apostle Paul is writing here in verse 5, because it has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our reason, nothing to do with our works, then we'll realize that our salvation is only according to His own mercy. Only according to His own mercy. You know, that's a hard pill for us to swallow in deep south Bible Belt culture. Because we pride ourselves on good hospitality. We pride ourselves on using good manners. We pride ourselves on being kind. We even pride ourselves, if we're honest, on belonging to a church body and even saying that we love Christ. And and so you ask the question, well, if you were... That evangelism explosion question. Have you ever heard this question? Well, if you were to die tonight and stand before the Lord your judge facing eternity, and He was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your response be? Overwhelmingly, in deep South Bible Belt culture, we would begin to say things well, or like, well, my mom and my dad were faithful members of the church, and they instilled within me a love for the church, and I have done this, and I have done that, and I've raised my kids like this, and I've taught them to say yes ma'am and no ma'am, and I and you begin to just pour out this list of accomplishments that you have done. And any time the answer to the question of why we inherit the kingdom of heaven starts with a, well, I did, we've got the gospel wrong, brothers and sisters. Because here it is that the, the Apostle Paul is saying it is only by 
the mercy of the Lord in the grace that He has shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ that He has saved us. That He has saved us. We're not saved by any sort of righteous works, even though good works are a lot to do with the Christian life, as we'll, Lord willing, look at next week as we are commanded to be about good works. But if we entrust our salvation to these good works, we are going to be hopeless. Because we cannot be good enough to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We cannot be good enough to reach the standards of God's holy living. Therefore, we need mercy and grace to be saved. And so as he moves along, the Apostle Paul moves along in verse 5, he begins to expound for us how by God's mercy he has enacted with us this salvation that has been wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says in, at the end of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's on these works of the Holy Spirit that I want to, to, to camp out for a few moments as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. Because what is being described here or better yet, what is being emphasized here is the fact that God uses His Spirit to save us. God uses His Spirit to transform us into the likeness of His Son. And, and if we were to think about how the, the story of, of the Bible unfolds for us all throughout the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The promise of salvation is rooted in what the Old Testament calls the promise of grace, which is the Holy Spirit. Which the, the Gospel author Luke writes in his Gospel and in the Acts narrative, the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. And so this promise of salvation rooted in the Holy Spirit is right here before us as He says it is by His Spirit that we are regenerated and renewed. That we are washed, He says. And if you were to think about how we are washed by the Holy Spirit I think the best way to think about it is literally that we are made clean. That we are made clean. You know, when John the Revelator, the apostle who Jesus loved, as he sees the heavens being unfolded before him in Revelation, he says that he has seen this multitude of people. And, and they are clothed in the whitest of robes so that when he looks upon them, they, they shine like the sun. John says. And, and if you know the story of this particular scene of heaven, this angel walks up to John and, and he goes, John, who are these? Who are these people, this multitude? And he says, I don't know, but you know. And the angel responds, well, this is the people of God who have gone through the tribulation and they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
You know, we sing hymn after hymn after hymn here that speaks of the cleansing flow that flows from the cross of Calvary. That the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross cleanses us from all unrighteousness. My favorite hymn you might know is There is a fountain filled with blood and it says, Sinners plunge beneath that flow lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. They are cleansed. They are washed. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary is then applied to us by the Spirit so that we might be presented holy and blameless and clean before the Father in heaven. One of the things in which I I love about the Puritans is that they practice greatly this idea of spiritual meditation. I know that sounds a little weird to our uh, our modern day thinking, but but the Puritans, they they love this idea of meditation. And, And they were debating one day, what does meditation really look like? And in walks one of... Uh, one of the women in the home as they were cleaning up uh, after lunch for these uh, pastors who were sitting at the table reclining after a meal and debating these theological things. And, And one of the men, one of the Puritans asked, they said, what do you think is meditating on the gospel? How, how do you practice meditation in your own life? And she goes, well, I'm about to walk into the kitchen and I'm about to wash these dishes. And as I wash them, I'm going to sit here and think how Titus chapter 3 tells me that the Holy Spirit washes me clean from all the filth of my sin. And and it's those daily reminders of the gospel that were so impactful for the Puritans. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that we never graduate from the gospel where we need a cleansing power of the Spirit so that we might be washed. But also, we need the Spirit that we might be regenerated, don't you see? That's the second work that's listed for us here. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us, that enables us to be born again. And and you remember that conversation that takes place in John chapter 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus. How mind-boggling it was for this this member of the religious establishment, to hear Jesus say, well, the way that you're saved is that you're born again. And, and he looks at Jesus with this dumbfounded, this, just this look that speaks volumes. And he says, well, Jesus, how in the world am I to be born again? I'm a grown man. And Jesus responds, this isn't any earthly This isn't any earthly act in which I'm talking of. This is a birth, a rebirth of the Spirit where, as the prophet of old says, that our hearts of stone are made hearts of flesh so that we might be in recognition of our sin so that we might see Christ as He's held forth in the Word of God and so that we might cling to Him, receive Him in Faith, that's what it means to be regenerated. It means to be made new. And that's exactly what the third function or work of the Spirit is as we continue on in this text. 
Because it says that He washes us with regeneration and renewal. Renewal. If we were Greek scholars here, we would know that if we scratched this original Greek word that's translated for us in our ESV, renewal, you'll, you'll notice that it's a one-time event, but also it's an ongoing event. And you go, well, Matt, how in the world can that be? Well, the Greek language has some ways in which they can do that, and it's simply trying to teach us that you have been justified, you've been declared righteous, but you're also being sanctified, that you're being made righteous. And how do we hold those two things in parallel with one another? Well, because Christ is our advocate and our propitiation, God the Father looks upon us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, being washed by the Holy Spirit, and he says, not guilty. Not guilty. But at the very same time, the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, is making us more holy. He's making us more righteous. He is enabling us to kill sin in our life and pursue Christ's likeness. He is sanctifying us by the truth, Jesus says in John chapter 17. And so as the Holy Spirit is renewing us, we, we know that he has, he has proclaimed that we are clean and He is cleansing us. He has proclaimed us righteous, declared us righteous, and He is making us more righteous. He is renewing us into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And, and the beautiful proclamation of that is how it's written it's an already and a not yet. So we're so confident in the not yet that we can speak about it in the already. That the good work that the Lord has started in us will be brought to its completion on the day of glory. And for the sake of time, I want to move on to this idea that He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's verse 6. Talking about the Holy Spirit, it says that the Lord Himself poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Father and the Son now gives to us the Spirit. And it's a personal Spirit. Christ says in the upper room that He will be with us and in us. The Holy Spirit is ours. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out. At the precise moment in which you believe, brothers and sisters, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are given the Spirit in full measure. That is what happens when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, call Him Lord and Savior of our lives, we are indwelt the Spirit. Indwelt, the Word of God says, with the Spirit. But at the very same time, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.18 that we must be filled with the Spirit. How do those two things work? How can you be indwelt with the Spirit in full measure and, the, and then be commanded to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5? Well, beloved, there's, there's a difference. This isn't original to me. 
this is by uh, a Baptist brother, H.B. Charles. He says, there's a difference in being indwelt and infilled. There's a difference in being indwelt and infilled. We are indwelt by the Spirit at the moment of our salvation, but at the very same time, we are to seek more of the Spirit so that we might walk in the Spirit and in the ways of holiness. To make this clear, he uses the illustration of a smart car. Now, what's funny about this is I listened to this sermon for the first time two weeks ago while I was uh, on a little bit of vacation in Brevard, North Carolina at the PCA camp Ridge Haven with a few friends. And one of those friends that were visiting with us was Aaron Halbert, our missionary to Honduras. And because Aaron flies and rents cars all the time, traveling as a missionary to raise support, he gets upgrades constantly. And so he reaches the United States, he flies into Asheville, uh, and he gets his rental car. And like every single time he gets a rental car, they go, hey, you've, you've won a promotion. We're going to give you any car that you want in the lot. And so he picks out this beautiful black Beamer. Three rows, heated armrest in the very back seat. I mean, he's sending us all these pictures. He, he, uh, he is so excited that we're going to ride around Bavard. You know, seven guys, because uh, there's nothing like seven guys riding in a Beamer together. Uh, we're going to ride into Brevard. We're going to go to coffee shops. We're going to be piling out of this Beamer, and we're going to look cool. He's so excited. And we go to get into the Beamer for the first time. We hit this little button. My car, you still have to like pull the levers to fold the seats down. This one, it's just a button. And the seats fold down and stop. We have no clue how to get this seat up. We're hitting the buttons. We're cranking the car, uncranking the car. We're, we're, we're laying all the rest of the seats down in the third row, but we can't get the front, the middle row to, to come up. And so half of us get in the Beamer, half of us get in another vehicle, and we cut on this H.B. Charles sermon. And he opens with the illustration that being indwelt with the Holy Spirit and being infilled with the Holy Spirit is like having the brand new Beamer and you can't even ride in it because you don't know how to work it. And I looked at my friend Pete and I go, well, this is providential, isn't it? Because <laughs> we couldn't even ride in the Beamer because we didn't know how to work it. Being indwelt with the Spirit and being infilled with the Spirit is the same exact thing. That we have the Spirit. He indwells us and yet so often we do not walk by the Spirit. We're not filled with the Spirit as in the fact that we're not pursuing righteousness. And so when Paul tells us that He has been poured out upon us richly, we must know that we have the Spirit in full measure, and now you must go. Remember the motivation of Titus is to go be living demonstrations of God's grace, right? In the church, in the community. Because you have been indwelt by the Spirit, you should be praying that the Spirit would be even more realized, even more full within your life so that you might walk in the ways of righteousness, so that you might be who you are, a Christian indwelt by the Spirit. And everybody would know it too. 
That's the difference in being indwelt and in field. But if you look at verse 7, if you look at verse 7, it says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is where the Apostle Paul puts it on a tee for me as we approach the table because he says this saying is trustworthy. It's true. Take it to the bank. It's based upon the promises of God and God swears upon His own name for there is nothing greater that He can swear upon that as we have been justified and dwelt by the Spirit, we might insist on these things. And what are these things? That we have received the Spirit of God, that we have received the salvation of God, because we have believed on God's name. Therefore, it says, we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If we stand in Christ, and we come to the Lord's table in faith, yes, it's a remembrance of what Christ has done on our behalf. This is the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me, it says. But it's also looking forward to an anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where it's not just a simple cup and a simple piece of bread, but it's a feast of the best foods and the best of wines so that we might know that we get to sit and commune with our God in our full glorified state forever. What happens here when we approach this table is in the now, God's Spirit mysteriously raises us up. Raises us up to the heavenly places so that we might commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. But in glory, we will behold Him as He is and we will be like Him and we will sit and recline with Him and we will eat and we will feast. And the most beautiful part of that is we'll sit in the place of honor because the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, is our elder brother. And the inheritance of heaven is ours. And so we come to this table knowing it's not the table of First Presbyterian Church, nor is it the table of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. This is the Lord's table. And it's an appetizer of the glories that are to come. All those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome here. This table is for you. The the invitation is come and taste and see. And our God is so gracious to us that He doesn't just proclaim the Gospel through the preaching of the Word for the ears, but that He gives us sensual elements that we can hold and we can smell it and we can see it and we can taste it to remind us of the Gospel promises that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. And beloved, as we come to this table, you're only made worthy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a fence around this table. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Redeemer and King, this table is not for you. But we do ask that you would take this time to profess Christ. Jesus Christ says Himself, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That gospel invitation is here this morning.
And so, repent and believe. Count Christ as your Redeemer, King, and Lord. And all these things will be added to you. And the next time we celebrate it together, you may feast. But if you're not a believer, please let these elements pass you by. But for all those who stand knowing that they belong to Jesus Christ by faith, this table is for you. Let me pray as the elders come, and then we'll uh, observe the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this, your word and your table. And may we, Lord, by it be strengthened, renewed, and reminded that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again to the glory of God our Savior. We ask these things. Amen.